This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Okay, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today um, is Dr. Claire Couples. Um, she's going to be talking about germ warfare, their evolutionary struggle between microbes and mammals. There's, again, lots more said on our website, but briefly I'll say Dr. Claire Couples is the Dean of Science at Simon Fraser University and a professor of molecular biology and biochemistry. Dr. Couples has taught university courses in microbial molecular biology for 20 years and currently serves as president of the Canadian Council of Deans of Science and sits on the boards of Triumph, uh, BCNet, Banfield Marine Sciences Centre and the Science Fair Foundation of BC. Her research focuses on the causes, consequences and prevention of mutations in microbes and humans. So please welcome Dr. Uh, Clara Couples to our meeting today. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I let me know if you can't hear me, and we'll adjust the volume on the um, on the microphone. Uh, thank you for getting up early um, by yesterday's standards and uh, coming on such a lovely day to hear me talk about uh, microbiology. So I'm sort of a microbiologist by accident. Um, I've never uh, actually taken a microbiology course, but when I started doing uh, university research. Uh, I started working on one of the um, sort of model organisms that a lot of uh, biologists work on, which they use to understand how the biological world works. And uh, the organism that I work on is E. coli, which is a bacterium. Um, and so that sort of made me into a microbiologist. And when uh, various people were looking for courses to be taught in microbiology in the universities where I've taught in, um, because I work on E. coli, I became sort of an automatic microbiologist. But over the years, I've realized how interesting microorganisms are, um, and particularly their evolutionary history with humans. So what I'm going to tell you about today is, is some of that, something that I have taught over the years uh, in a variety of different um, universities and, and groups, and I hope you find it uh, interesting because, in essence, without microorganisms, we wouldn't be here. Uh, the world around us wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be here because, in essence, uh, the microorganisms that live with you and on you and in you uh, outnumber your own cells by about a, a factor of 10. So without the microorganisms, particularly in your gut, uh, you certainly wouldn't be the people you are today or the people we are today. But what I'm going to tell you about today is the evolution uh, that takes place between microorganisms and people. Actually, I'm going to start with a non-human um, animal, which is actually the rabbit, because it gives us a nice window into how these two types of organisms co-evolve. So actually, just a quick, um, perhaps, link to the present day. You may have been reading recently in the newspaper about some group A streptococcus that's uh, been killing people at a slightly higher than normal rate, particularly in, in Quebec and in eastern Canada. And you probably associate those particular uh, types of uh, organisms with the flesh-eating disease. 
But if you had been a practicing physician, as my father-in-law was back in the 50s, you wouldn't have heard about that disease. What you would have heard about is scarlet fever. And uh, that was a pretty serious um, illness simply because it led to kidney damage uh, and heart damage in a certain percentage of the people who survived that initial uh, illness, which in itself was relatively mild. You don't hear about scarlet fever anymore, but instead you hear about flesh-eating disease. And it's actually the same organism, but over the last uh, half century or so, it's evolved to be a different type of organism which gives a different set of symptoms. So even within our lifetimes, we've seen the evolution of these uh, interactions between humans and bacteria in this particular case. But of course, scientists always want to have some way of looking at things experimentally. We know that things happen by looking at populations and by the kind of history I've just talked about. But it's always nice to be able to actually test uh, how these things happen. And so there's a particular example that I wanted to start off with, which uh, was gave an illustration, gave a window on how microorganisms, uh, in this case a virus, and animals, in this case a rabbit, co-evolve. So I'll start off telling you a little about, about that. And it's about the evolutionary relationship between a myxoma virus, uh, which is a pox virus. So it's related to the same kind of viruses that give humans smallpox, or used to, uh, and the European rabbit. So of course, rabbits are not native to Australia. But um, a century or so ago, humans introduced them partly for, uh, as a source of meat, uh, partly for hunting or for fur and things like that. And the rabbits escaped, and rabbits being rabbits, they bred like rabbits. And before too long, they had taken over large chunks of Australia. And that was a problem because they competed with the natural organisms that lived there, like kangaroos, and also with the sheep and the cattle that humans had introduced themselves as well uh, for um, commercial purposes. So. In about 1950, um, a group of scientists decided that they should try a natural experiment or a natural way of controlling the rabbit population. And they took a virus which lives in a South American rabbit population, quite happily coexisting with that rabbit population. And they introduced it into the Australian rabbit population, which was not naturally resistant to that particular virus. And they thought this would be a great way of, of killing the rabbits. And in fact, that proved to be the case. So what you see here is sort of a schematic of the, um, the numbers of rabbits in Australia. And before the myxoma virus was introduced to try to control their numbers, there was a lot of them, as shown by that uh, circle on the left. And then within literally a year of introducing that virus into a small number of, of rabbits, it spread like wildfire across the Australian rabbit population. And the numbers of rabbits dr dramatically declined. So about 99.9% .9 of the rabbits who got infected with this virus um, died, and it looked as though it was going to do the trick in terms of removing this introduced pest species from Australia. But over time, and this just takes us up to the 90s, but it's continued to this day, the rabbit population gradually came back, not to the same levels that it was to begin with, but certainly more than people probably were hoping uh, would happen at the time. And so, you know, by the end of the 50s, there was an increase in the rabbits, and, and gradually over time, there's been more rabbits. 
So in essence, um, this is a, an evolutionary adaptation, obviously, between the, the virus, which is not killing as many rabbits as it used to, and the rabbits that are not dying as fast as they used to with the virus. But the interesting thing is that this was, in essence, a situation where you could actually study the natural history of this progression from killing everything to killing only some of it. And it turned out that the reason one could look at this evolution was because the virus that was introduced the, to the rabbit population, the myxoma virus, was a standard laboratory strain of myxo, myxoma virus. So they had the original virus that they used to do the original infection of the rabbits. The rabbits were also very standard laboratory rabbits. You know, the European rabbit is the rabbit that's used in laboratories. And so there was a pretty good genetic standard rabbit that one could use to look at the evolution between the two sets of organisms. So basically, that allowed people to do two things. You could, um, you could see how the virus had evolved over that period of time, and it continues today. And you can check how the host, the rabbit, had become more resistant over time. So in essence, you can take the virus, which you've accumulated from the animals that are living today or over the last period of, of time, you can actually isolate virus from infected rabbits in Australia, and you can see, okay, how effective are those natural isolates of virus in killing a standard laboratory rabbit. And then you can do the re reverse experiment. You can take an, a rabbit from the field, as it were, and see how effective was the original virus in killing that rabbit. So basically, you can see how the, how the two organisms have evolved because you've got the original sort of reference uh, organisms to compare them to. And so that's just a cartoon showing that what happens. You can uh, isolate the, the, the virus over time, uh, which is what you see on the left, and you can see has it become stronger or weaker. Um, and then you can look at the host over time and see, well, over time, does it become more resistant to the virus or, or what happens? And so you've got a really nice sort of natural experiment here running um, naturally in the in the country, and you can, but you can actually experimentally see what's happening between those two organisms. And basically what's happening is that the virus, the virus in the natural populations in Australia is getting weaker. The rabbits, in essence, are getting more resistant. They're getting more resistant to the virus. And it's actually known now what it is about the virus that has changed to allow this to happen. And, and I won't bore you with the details. But it's a really nice little experiment that shows that um, these two organisms are co-evolving. And that makes sense. You know, if you're a virus, your whole purpose in life is to spread to another organism and make that sick, because that's your only way of reproducing. But if you kill the organism that you're infecting so fast that it can't hop around or run around and spread that organism or that virus to another a susceptible rabbit, you've failed as a virus. <laughs> Likewise, of course, if you want to pass on your, uh, if you want to have more, more rabbits, you've got to be able to be strong enough to resist that virus long enough to produce more baby rabbits. So in fact, this is just a, a graphical illustration. This is looking at the 
power or the virulence of the virus and saying, well, back in the 1950s, it was really high. It was the viruses were killing about 90%, 99% of the rabbits. But there was this steep decline very soon after it was introduced where it became less um, virulent, less ability to make animals sick. And then gradually over time sort of reached a, an equilibrium where it was strong enough that it could still infect the virus, or sorry, infect the rabbit, but weak enough that it would not kill all the rabbits before the rabbits handed it on to the next generation. And you see the similar kind of thing if you look at um, the resistance of the rabbit. When the myxoma virus was first introduced, the rabbits were very, very susceptible to that virus. But gradually over time, you get rabbits that are resistant to the virus. So this is sort of what you'd expect. And it, and it, but it also gives you a window, I think, on um, how all sorts of populations, including our own, interact with, with uh, microorganisms. So you well know that when uh, the European settlers first arrived in North America, for example, the native populations were very, very susceptible to things like measles, um, and mumps and chickenpox and uh, smallpox and things which certainly killed Europeans, but not to the same extent, because the the Europeans and these disease-causing organisms had coexisted for centuries, and they had done essentially what the rabbits had done. They had evolved a resistance to these organisms that were making them sick. Whereas this new population of humans that had never run into these particular diseases before just was very susceptible. But over time, of course, the native populations are as resistant to the, uh, these uh, microorganisms as we are. So it's the same process um, happening in humans. So that's just a little bit of a lesson in how organisms co-evolve. But at this point, I'm going to switch gears away from rabbits and to the organism that we're probably most interested in, which is ourselves. And so basically, what I want to do over the next little while is talk about how we can actually see the effects of microorganisms on our own evolutionary history. So a lot of the um, diseases that we suffer from today, and here I mean the genetic diseases that we suffer from today, as you'll see as I go through the rest of this, are actually um, probably diseases which have evolved in humans as a result of our trying to combat microbial infections. And in this case, I'm switching from viruses to bacteria. So our evolutionary history with bacteria has actually shaped some of our genetic uh, uh, capabilities, uh, our qualities uh, in the current age. And some of the things that we think of as bad news in terms of genetic diseases are actually traditionally good news uh, when it comes to dealing with microorganisms. So I'm going to give you two examples where the ability of humans to evolve resistance to two infectious diseases has given rise to some genetic adaptations uh, in, in the human population. And the two that I'm going to use are cholera um, and malaria, neither of which we have to worry about at in this day and age in, in North America, but are still killing a lot of people uh, around the world. Malaria, particularly in Africa, um, and um, cholera, basically wherever uh, large quantities of humans um, and 
social disruption, um, poor sanitation come together. The most recent example being uh, since the earthquake in Haiti, uh, where cholera has become a really big problem. So I'm going to start off actually backwards and introduce you to a disease called sickle cell anemia. Um, it's part of a family of, of um, human genetic diseases. They're also, uh, these sickle cell anemia is largely found in African populations. Um, there's some thalassemias, which are a similar kind of disease, which are found among the peoples who live in the Mediterranean region, so southern Italy, um, Greece, um, southern Europe in general, and, and North Africa. So this is a disease which is genetic, and it uh, is a disease that is, um, affects the red blood cells. So those are the cells in your um, body that trans make blood red and that also transport the oxygen that you need to keep on living around the, around the body. And so these red blood cells are normally sort of disc-shaped, uh, kind of like Frisbees, only maybe a little bit thicker. And they are um, very good at squeezing through the very narrow blood vessels that uh, exist at, say, in the ends of your fingers, so the sort of final blood vessels that deliver all the blood to, to the tissues in your body. And the nice thing about something that's disc-shaped is you can fold it. Um, if you've got a, a, a lid of a you know, plastic lid or a plastic frisbee, you can probably fold it and you can squeeze it through a narrower opening than you would normally get it through if it was just in a disc. And so that's what happens in the capillaries. But if, the, um, if there's a mutation in the, um, in the cell that causes it to take up a different shape, in this case, a sort of sickle shape, it can't squeeze through the blood vessels. And so it clogs up, it forms log jams. And that interferes with the ability of the um, blood to be delivered properly uh, to the rest of the tissues of the body. And it also causes a lot of pain um, just because of the clogging of the blood vessels, kind of like you might think of associated with a heart attack, that same kind of idea of pain associated with the blockage of a, of a blood vessel. And so these, the people who suffer from sickle cell anemia have these sickled cells, and we have, or, or people without sickle cell anemia have the normal uh, shaped things. Now this turns out to be a single mutation. There's only one difference between somebody with sickle cell anemia and somebody without it, and it's a single um, genetic change um, that it basically um, changes one base in one gene of that particular individual from an AT base pair. If you know anything about DNA, they, the DNA comes in pairs, and the AT is changed into a TA. Very, very simple sort of one-letter change, if you like, um, which has this really catastrophic effect because it changes the shape of the hemoglobin, that's the red pigment in the red blood cell that carries the oxygen around, and by doing that change in the hemoglobin, it actually causes all the molecules of, of hemoglobin to clump up together, the way you see on the right at the bottom. And so because the molecules are clumped up and, and sort of forming a traffic jam in the cell, the cells themselves change in their shape, and they form these funny shapes, which has all those effects that I mentioned. So this is a human genetic disease. Um, and um, as I said, it's, uh, it's something that affects particular populations. 
So what populations are those? Well, I've given you already a clue. Um, and what you see here is two maps uh, of the African um, and Mediterranean, uh, South Asian uh, part of our globe. And on the right, in red, you see where the sickle cell trait, the, the sickle cell disease, is most likely to occur. So you can see it's in um, parts of Africa, uh, around the Mediterranean, and parts of the Middle East. It's remarkably similar when you look at it to the map on the left, which is actually a map showing where malaria is very common. So malaria tends to be in the same general areas of the world that you find people with sickle cell anemia or these thalassemias, which are similar kinds of things. So when people first start, saw these maps, they said, hmm, you know, this makes sense. Maybe the fact that you find sickle cell anemia in the same places that you find malaria, there's a relationship there. And so, in fact, it turns out that there is. So basically, this is just a, a life cycle of the organism that causes malaria. And so it's a bacterium, um, and it... Um, or at least it's a single-celled microorganism, let's leave it at that. And it basically, it's carried by the mosquito. And the mosquito, when it bites the human, injects some of that uh, organism into the human bloodstream. It goes through a very complicated life cycle. We don't need to worry about that. Except to say that the final step in this whole process that takes place in people who've been bitten by one of these mosquitoes is that the microorganism replicates or grows inside the red blood cell. So you can see up at the top the, the red blood cells um, here, and the um, blue dots within them are this microorganism. It's busy reproducing. And of course, that's a nice place to be because next time a mosquito bites that individual, they'll pick up some of those uh, microorganisms and they're ready to start the cycle all over again. But it turns out that this particular organism will only reproduce in normal red blood cells. It won't reproduce in sickle-celled red blood cells. So in essence, somebody who has sickle cell anemia, even though they have anemia and they're not necessarily particularly healthy for that reason, have one advantage, that they're very resistant to malaria because the microorganism just can't replicate inside the red blood cell. So to summarize that, basically, if you have the normal red blood cells on the left, uh, you're healthy as far as sickle cell disease goes, and that's probably uh, the majority of, of people in this room, um, because sickle cell is not a common disease. Um, but you are susceptible to malaria, because the malarial uh, microorganism is quite capable of replicating in your red blood cells. On the right, you see the, the example of somebody who has um, sickle cell disease badly. Um, they have all of their red blood cells in this abnormal shape. Um, they're not healthy because they have the disease, but they are resistant to malaria. But the best option would be if you were uh, both resistant to malaria and didn't have sickle cell disease. And that's the situation in the middle. And so I'll show you a little bit more about that later, but basically it means that if your parents were both uh, carriers, 
then you might be a carrier as well. And in essence, that means you have, because you've got two parents and therefore two versions of every gene, you'll have one normal gene and one mutated gene. And so that means half your red blood cells are normal and half your red blood cells are abnormal. So you have a mixture. And that means that you're much less resistant or you're much less um, susceptible to malaria because only half your red blood cells will work for the malarial parasite, but you are um, not sufficiently sick because most of your blood cells are, you've still got enough to make you healthy. So being a carrier, being that bit in the middle where you've got one healthy gene and one mutated gene is actually a really good thing. And so that's probably why sickle cell disease has persisted in human populations, because it gives the people in the middle the chance to grow up and have children of their own um, and, and at the same time resist both malaria and sickle cell disease. So it turns out that there's obviously been evolutionary pressure between humans and the organism that causes malaria. Now, you're unlikely to run into t much malaria here unless you travel to an area that has it. And as I said, because of uh, the fact that um, this is a fairly specific population of people, the chances of you running into somebody with sickle cell disease are probably not as high as they might be in some parts of the world. But there is a disease that's closer to home, and you may know people, as I do, who have this disease, and that's cystic fibrosis. And this is another example that I'll tell you about where the co-evolution of a microorganism and a, and a human uh, characteristic have led to something which is advantageous in some situations but disadvantageous in others. So cystic fibrosis is a disease of salt transport. So each of the cells in your body has to be able to pump salt in and out across the cell membrane. And if you've ever put salt on a cucumber, um, you know what happens. Salt pulls water out of things. It pulls water out of cells. Um, and so the, getting the balance of, of salt right in the body is very important. And each cell has its own little pump that makes sure that the balance of salt inside and outside the cell uh, is sufficiently uh, good for the cell to function properly. And so what you see here actually is the edge of a cell. Um, this is the cell membrane here. This is the inside of the cell, and the white part at the top is the outside of the cell. And this is the little channel that runs across the cell membrane, and as I said, pumps salt in and out so that it can adjust the content of the cell for whatever it is the cell wants to do. So you see the normal situation on the left. That's a person that doesn't have cystic fibrosis, and the, the channel is functional and so the cell is able to adjust the salt concentrations. What you see on the right is a mutant um, chloride channel or pump um, and again it's one, one single little mutation that makes the difference between the left which is one that works and the right which is one that doesn't. Now the, because the, in cystic fibrosis that channel is defective, it doesn't work properly, um, the, the cell can't balance the amount of chloride ions, in this case, so, as in sodium chloride, across the, the, the uh, membrane of the cell. And as a result of that, it leads to an increase in mucus um, around the cell. And that acts as a breeding ground for all sorts of other bacteria. 
And that's why people who have cystic fibrosis suffer a lot from respiratory infections, which often eventually need them, mean they have to have a lung transplant. And it also affects the function of pancreas and all sorts of other organs as well. And it's simply because of this one defect in this channel, which adjusts the salt concentration across the cell membrane. So this is a fairly common disease in northern European populations. And so, as I said, you may know people who have this problem. Turns out there's good evidence that suggests, uh, or at least good scientific evidence that suggests, that the reason that cystic fibrosis is so prevalent is in fact because of cholera. And so cholera is what has selected human populations to maintain that sickle cell, or sorry, <laughs> that um, cystic fibrosis trait. So what is cholera? Well, cholera is a bacterium as well, or it's a, a disease caused by bacteria. And it lives in nat the natural environment, in water supplies. Um, turns out it uh, has a, probably a symbiotic relationship with various different kinds of shellfish. And in essence, it's, um, it stays quite harmlessly in aquatic systems, in water supplies, um, which have been contaminated at some point in the past with human uh, sewage. And then when humans ingest that water, drink that water, or take food that has been contaminated with uh, water that's got the cholera bacterium in it, um, that um, bacterium takes up residence in the intestine and it colonizes the cells in the intestine. And as a result of that, it produces a toxin, a poison, and that causes a huge amount of diarrhea. And I'm talking something that most of us, all of us probably have never experienced, where basically you're, the, the diarrhea is so intense that people rapidly become dehydrated and they are dead, you know, literally within, uh, within 24 hours if it's not treated. Easy to treat, all you have to do is, is rehydrate the individual uh, and make sure that the salt and water that they've lost is restored. Easy to do in a North American hospital, maybe a little harder to do if, if you're in a, a, a state of war, that's at war or that has uh, got some kind of social breakdown. But in essence, that's the way cholera works. And so um, what does that mean for this uh, cystic fibrosis disease that I told you about. Well, this probably isn't a very good figure, and for that I apologize. But basically, um, what it's saying is that the, um, the cholera um, toxin, this, this thing that leads to the, the massive diarrhea, it works by targeting um, that chloride channel. So remember, we've got this channel that is adapting the concentration of salt across the membrane. And basically, this um, cholera toxin is sort of turning that channel on full blast. Instead of sort of you know, adjusting the concentration of salt, it's saying, OK, open that channel wide, ship out all the water, ship out all the salt, um, and that's what makes people sick. So that's what's happening um, in, the, in the bottom. Um, and, but in the top, it shows what happens with people with cystic fibrosis. So remember, this channel doesn't work in people with cystic fibrosis. So therefore, the cholera can't, toxin can't make it super work. It just basically is, is resistant to the toxin. 
So the toxins opening the channels in people like us, or if, if you're not a cystic fibrosis uh, patient, gives us this nasty um, dehydration that can kill us. But if the, if the channel that it's opening can't work to begin with, there's nothing the toxin can do about it. So people basically with, with cystic fibrosis have that advantage that they're resistant to cholera. So again, it's not a good thing to have cystic fibrosis because obviously it leads to life-threatening illnesses. And in the days before transplants and things like that and our better understanding of the disease, it killed people before they reached, uh, before they reached adulthood. And even today, it's something that can shorten people's lifespan. So having uh, cystic fibrosis is not a good thing. On the other hand, if you live in a part of the world where cholera is endemic, and we all did, our, our ancestors all did, then having uh, a completely functional um, chloride channel it makes you very susceptible to, um, to cholera. So again, the same thing happens as we see in sickle cell. If you've got one parent who uh, has the defective gene for this chloride channel and one who has the normal gene, then in essence, some of your, um, some of your channels will look like the one on the left and some will look like the one on the right. So you have a mixture. And so when you're not facing cholera, that's an advantage. You've got enough function that you don't suffer from cystic fibrosis. But if you do get infected with cholera, you've got only half your channels that are susceptible to the toxin, and so you're much more resistant to cholera. So it's the same kind of ideas with sickle cell trait, probably the evolution of humans, um, which led to these two genetic diseases, was a result of the bacteria sort of um, selecting for those people who were, who were basically carriers and could uh, then be, be resistant to the bacteria without being susceptible to the genetic disease. So basically, that's what we're looking at here. This is just a sort of genetic chart. You can assume that this is either sickle cell uh, anemia or uh, call our um, cystic fibrosis. And so basically, if you've got um, a father who has one normal gene and one abnormal gene, and a mother who also has one normal gene and one abnormal gene, then this is probable probability, not reality, of course, then out of every four kids that this couple has, um, one will be uh, completely normal. Um, two of them will be carriers, so they will be like the parents with one normal gene and one abnormal gene. And then a quarter of the kids, on average, will be severely affected. So this would be somebody, for example, with full-blown cystic fibrosis or full-blown sickle cell disease, life-limiting. This would be somebody who is completely normal in terms of their ion channels and, and their blood cells, um, but they would be susceptible to those bacterial diseases. And then these are the, the lucky winners. Um, they're the ones who are both uh, functionally normal in terms of their blood cells and their um, their ability to regulate blood uh, ion flows across membranes, but they're also more resistant to disease. So basically, humans and microbes have coexisted and co-evolved, 
And that's why these genetic diseases persist in our population, because historically they gave us a survival advantage. And of course, there's still no problem with being a carrier these days. You're, you're still going to be uh, living a normal, healthy life, even without those infectious agents. Um, but that's why they often say, you know, you shouldn't marry your first cousin and um, you should perhaps be tested if you think that uh, there's a genetic disease. So these things can be tested for ahead of time these days. So um, those two diseases and, and genetic defects that I've told you about are just two examples. There's others as well. That the top two are the ones I've just been telling you about. There's also some suggestion that uh, Tay-Sachs disease um, is related to resistance to tuberculosis. It's often found in uh, Jewish populations of European origin. Um, and this, the idea is that perhaps um, in the sort of crowded uh, conditions of the, in which the Jewish populations lived in some of the bigger cities in Europe um, 100 years ago or so, where tuberculosis was a big uh, problem, that uh, Tay-Sachs was a genetic adaptation which made the population more resistant to, to tuberculosis. And then hemochromatosis, which I think is not, resist, not specific for any particular population. It's an inability to uh, regulate iron content of the body. So people tend to accumulate too much iron, which can uh, poison their organs. Um, people who, have, who are half and half for hemochromatosis seem to be a little bit more resistant to salmonella poisoning, food poisoning, because salmonella needs iron to grow. Um, and if you have um, too much or too little iron, uh, you, you're more resistant to salmonella. So there's a growing understanding that there's a lot of human genetic diseases that give, or have done in the past, give resistance to um, microbial diseases. So we've been looking back um, in time, looking at how we co-evolved and, and what these diseases tell us about our own evolutionary history. I'll just leave you with two final uh, ideas, looking at the present day. I think we tend to assume that we're perfect and therefore evolution has stopped and we're, we're never going to be any different from what we are today. But of course, evolution doesn't stop. Uh, the rabbits showed us that and we uh, know that ourselves looking at human beings. So I'm just going to tell you very briefly about two other diseases which are still things that bug us today and will probably bug us, at least in the case of influenza, for a long time into the future. So the battle is by no means over. So we're back to a virus again. This is the, um, the uh, HIV, the virus that causes uh, AIDS. And um, there's good evidence that there are people in the population who are really quite resistant to HIV. And they can be exposed to the virus repeatedly through tainted blood, um, through uh, blood transfusions, uh, intravenous drugs, uh, people working in the sex trade. Obviously, they are, in some populations, exposed to that virus repeatedly. And yet, there are some individuals within that group who never get HIV infection, who never suffer from AIDS. So there are obviously there are naturally resistant populations of humans uh, in the worldwide population. And it turns out that there, we now know why that is. So the diagram here gives you some idea of that. The, the, this bit here 
um, is the virus itself, the HIV. This is the human uh, white blood cell, which is the natural target for HIV infection. It's one of the reasons why the immune system is so severely destroyed by the virus. It's because the virus infects the cells in the immune system, the white blood cells. Now, like most viruses, it needs a doorway into the cell. It needs some way of getting entry into that cell. And it makes use of a receptor, a, a protein that's in the surface of the white blood cells, which is there not to be a doorway for HIV, but simply to help that cell do its normal function. And the virus has learned how to exploit that entry point and get into the cell. So on the left, we see the situation in the majority of people. The virus uh, is able to get into the cell through a normal receptor protein on the surface of the cell. On the right, you see these people who are very, very resistant to the virus. And the thing that's different between them and the majority of people is that they have a mutated receptor. So the receptor still presumably um, works to do its normal job, but because it's a slightly different shape, uh, it doesn't act as a doorway for the virus to get into the cell. And so that's the population of people that are resistant to HIV, simply because the virus can't get into their cells. And then there's some good evidence there are people who, again, are half and half. They have half of the normal uh, receptors on their white blood cells and half of the mutated ones. Um, and they are probably more resistant than the majority of people to the virus. So if we didn't have modern medicine and if we didn't have now effective treatments for, um, for this particular illness, which keep people alive for many years, has turned it into a chronic illness instead of an acute one, um, then the people who have the, the mutation which makes them naturally resistant are the ones who would survive. And they're the ones who would go on to re reproduce and produce the next generation of, of human beings. But of course, these days, uh, we're in the fortunate position of not having to let um, natural selection and evolution uh, do that for us. And we have ways of combating the virus, just as we do, of course, for ways of combating cholera and, and, um, and salmonella and all of these other infectious agents. Um, but basically, that's the kind of evolutionary process that we see or would see unfolding today. And actually, kind of like the, the rabbit, um, this virus probably got into the human population from, from uh, other non-human primates. And so when it crossed the, the, from one organism to another, uh, it crossed from a fairly resistant population, the, the chimpanzees and such, into a very susceptible population, which is the humans. Just as I said at the beginning, when, when Europeans brought their diseases to the North American populations that weren't resistant to them. So that's the kind of thing that's happening as, and has been happening in our lifetimes. And then there's one more I'll leave you with, which of course is something that we fight on, a, on an annual basis. And I'd be willing to bet um, that we will never actually um, come to a a truce with influenza virus. It's always going to be with us. And uh, the reason for that is that the, I've talked about how um, both the uh, mammalian population or the human population mutates to, av to avoid um, interactions with microorganisms. 
And as we saw in the case of the rabbit and the myxoma, the microorganism correspondingly mutates to adapt to us. But the problem with the influenza virus is that it mutates a, an awful lot faster than we do. And so every year, you know from, um, from the fact that you have to get a, a new flu shot every year, the virus changes. And it just changes so fast that we cannot, our immune systems and our ability to make vaccinations uh, just can't keep up. And so again, it's a receptor on the surface of cells. Um, the purple uh, blobs are, are receptors for that virus on the surface of the cell. Um, and every year, those um, receptors change. They mutate. And that means that if you were immune to last year's flu, you might not be as resistant to this year's flu. And then every, few, every so often, um, there's a really major change in these proteins. Um, and you get a completely different strain of virus, um, which is which almost nobody is resistant to. So you've probably heard of H1N2 and H3N4 and all these different variants. That's referring to these receptors, and there are two kinds, um, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. And so if they both uh, change drastically in, in the course of a single flu year, uh, that's when you've really got a problem and you get these influenzas from which uh, nobody can escape, or very few people can, unless they happen to be around the last time uh, this particular strain of, of flu came. So in essence, we're, we're fighting this evolutionary battle um, between humans and, um, and microorganisms. The fact that we're here today means that our ancestors survived, and the fact that we hopefully will be here uh, many uh, centuries into the future means that we will continue to win that war. Um, but this is something that um, basically both sets of organisms have co-adapted to each other. Uh, it's, it's good in the long run. It, um, it probably uh, makes us who we are, and it certainly makes the microorganisms who they are. So I hope that's given you a bit of a window into how um, we co-evolve with microorganisms and, um, and why it is that some of the diseases that bedevil us are things that actually in the past uh, helped our ancestors to survive long enough to give rise to us. So uh, thank you, and I'd be more than happy to answer questions. Thank you very much.